I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. The Karen Lewis Eating Disorder Center is expanding throughout the country. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, KarenLewisEDC.com. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. My guest for today is Joanna Candell, and Joanna is the founder of the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. And what a powerful message she has. Everything from her own experience to working on Capitol Hill trying to pass legislation to talking about her weekend coming up called Not One More Weekend for Eating Disorder Awareness Week. There's so much to talk about, so let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a really exciting episode of Recovery Bites. I am beyond honored to have our guest today, Joanna Candell. Joanna, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness, Karen. I am so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan, like I just shared with you prior to hopping on. Um, and I'm really excited to have this important and meaningful conversation with you. I'm I'm so excited because if people haven't heard of you, they have to. So I want everyone to listen to this episode. And for people that do know you, I I we just we just constantly need your voice. We need it to be heard. So Joanna, please tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then we'll get into the more of the interview part. Yeah, absolutely. So again, my name is Joanna. I utilize the pronouns she, her, and I am the founder and CEO of the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. We were formerly known as the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness. And this past October, celebrating our 21st anniversary, we decided to change our name to better reflect the work that we were doing on a local state national and actually international level. So we're thrilled to now be um, be the National Alliance. I am also a human of lived experience who is living um, completely beyond my eating disorder. Um, I also am very, very lucky to be an active member of the board of directors of the Eating Disorders Coalition. Um, and more than anything, I am a, I'm a wife, I'm a parent, 
Um, and I'm a human just trying to pay it forward and give back and hopefully make some difference um, in our community. You you are making more than a difference. It is it is pretty incredible what you are doing. And so, Joanna, I know a little bit about your story. And, and I want to be very clear with everyone. I say this every time I, I have this show. It is not necessary to recover from an eating disorder and make something out of it like a national organization or a podcast. Some of us just can't keep our mouths shut. So, <laughs> Joanna, tell everybody a little bit about your history with an eating disorder and then how you rechanneled that energy into something more productive. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up, Karen, because I share with people all the time um, when people go through something, they make a choice to either close the door and, and never talk about it again. And that is absolutely okay. In fact, it's perfect. Um, and then some people like, like you and I, like you said, we just can't help it. Um, and that definitely was my story. Um, so to do a real cliff notes version of my story, um, is really to look at my history. So I am someone that is um, part and has transgenerational trauma in my family. Uh, My father is a Holocaust survivor. um, And so that was pretty active um, in my home growing up. Eating disorders absolutely did run in my family. Um, my, my mother is one of seven children, three brothers, three sisters. Two out of her three sisters had eating disorders. Um, and my father has um, a sister and she also had an eating disorder. So as far as genetics goes, I was a little like skewed for that. But we all know that genetics don't necessarily mean that it will happen. Um, but I was, you know, born as someone that um, was hardwired to be a very black or white, all or nothing thinker. I do experience co-occurrence of anxiety and depression. In fact, I don't remember a time where anxiety wasn't part of my narrative and part of my story. Um, And then when I was three years old, I actually started dancing. So my mother put me in ballet because she wanted me to have poise and dance. And I fell in love with it. I just, I mean, show any three-year-old like a tiara and a tutu. I mean, most of, you know, a lot of, of, of folks that age love that. And so it was, it was magic for me. Um, so I actually became a pretty competitive um, ballet dancer. By the time I was 10, I was spending my summers in New York at School of American Ballet. And there was a lot of pressure on me uh, to be the one. And so very early on, I, I, I had this idea that I, I, I couldn't fail. Um, also with my dad having his trauma, um, never being able to be affectionate, tell me that he loved me. It was never good enough. We had to survive. Um, so there was just a lot. And living in this world that even at that point um, was very diet centric, was very fat phobic. In fact, I would say even to a point where it was even more than if that was possible than it is now, there was no acceptance of any body shape and size, except for the one that you saw in magazines. Um, I learned very early on that if I was going to succeed, I had to change myself. And so uh, we had auditions coming up to dance with a professional company um, for a production of The Nutcracker. And the artistic director of the ballet company came in and told our whole class, you have to audition in two months. And before the audition, we need you all to lose X amount of pounds. And I know she wasn't talking to me. I was about 
three to five years younger than than the other um, the other students in my class. But I had this: I have to win at all costs. I have to be the best. There's no room for failure. Uh, so I went on my first diet, and that literally was that um, that 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 trigger pull for me, where a simple diet then turned into a decade-long experience with eating disorders. Uh, I was a very non-discriminatory eating disorder human, meaning that you name it, I did it. Um, I ultimately had to stop dancing uh, because I became too sick and they thought that my eating disorder was clearly the cause, uh, excuse me, the ballet was clearly the cause of the eating disorder. Um, and then, you know, my eating disorder changed from, uh, you know, low weight restricting anorexia nervosa to binge eating disorder to what is now considered atypical anorexia nervosa. Um, and it got to a point where I knew that if I didn't even peek out of the door, that I would end up losing my battle. I had come very close several times. I had been hospitalized several times. Um, and so I remember picking up the phone. I was uh, in undergrad in college and I called my mom and dad and I said, mom, dad, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I wish I could tell you, Karen, I'm sure you experienced this and many people that you've talked to, your patients, people that you've had on this podcast. In my mind, I thought it was black and white. It would be just a light switch that once I made that decision and it wasn't. Uh, Recovery was the hardest thing I ever did. It was one step forward, three steps back, four steps forward. It was so messy. And I really approached recovery the same way I approached my eating disorder, which just didn't work because the journey to recovery is not going to be perfect. No one will have a perfect journey to recovery. Um, and for me to sort of wrap this up, there were significant things that happened during my experience that really launched me into the work that I did and, and have now actually become the pillars of what we do here at the Alliance. So the first thing was, is I didn't have access to care. My, my parents didn't have the money to pay for, for treatment. Um, and my, the insurance companies wouldn't pay for, for, for treatment either. At that point, I was, um, I was living life in a higher weight body, which at that point, there wasn't even a binge eating disorder diagnosis. Um, so they thought, you know, just stop eating. They basically prescribed me the things that I had been struggling with when I was experiencing, you know, <laughs> when I was experiencing other types of eating disorders. The other thing is, is that I went to many providers that knew nothing about eating disorders. I remember I was 17 years old and my pediatrician put me on the scale, looked at my mom and said, oh, she's a little underweight, go home and give her some good French food. She'll be fine. Um, and the next day, ended up, I ended up in the cardiac care unit, um, and no one the entire time I was in the hospital ever uttered the words eating disorder, even though at that time, I literally fit into that archaic and bullshit stereotypical mold of who develops eating disorders and what they look like. They still didn't diagnose me. And what makes matters worse is our now clinical director at the Alliance was actually on staff and was one of the few doctors that actually knew anything about eating disorders. And so it like just made me crazy that first, that I couldn't get access to care. Two, that no one could diagnose me. Nobody knew anything. Three, I had no idea where to turn for help. The first therapist I went to go see um, wasn't a specialist in, in eating disorders. Um, she specialized in substance use. And so she came at me by saying, you know, Joanna, I'm really happy that you're here, but I need you to know that you know, once you have an eating disorder, you always have an eating disorder. You will never recover. 
And I understand she was coming from that 12-step modality from, from the alcohol and substance but I didn't need her to say that in that moment. I needed her to say it gets better because I had very little hope at that time. So of course, when you hear that and you're really not bought in, maybe like 1% bought in, it was just you know carte blanche for me to continue to do what I was doing. And the last thing that I wanted more than anything was to be in a room where I felt seen and heard, where people spoke my language because for me, the isolation, the loneliness of my eating disorder was one of the hardest parts. And so as I slowly, you know, as I slowly inched my way towards the journey to recovery, I did connect with a therapist who specialized in eating disorders. I went to AA meetings. I went to, you know, Al-Anon meetings. I went to everything that I could because I was just wanting to recover. I slowly started my journey to recovery and it's been, you know, over two decades now that I, I do consider myself recovered whatever ending to the word recover you choose is absolutely what your choice is. I do, I do prescribe to recover because my eating disorder is not a part of my life anymore, meaning that it's not part of the negotiating table. It's not part of, of the dinner table. I mean, I talk about eating disorders all the time, but it's not my struggle anymore. Do I still struggle with anxiety? Yeah. Has it been super fun with this pandemic? Oh Yeah but I'm living my life beyond my eating disorder. And so for me, as I was getting ready to go to graduate school, because I thought that I wanted to be a psychologist that specialized in eating disorders, what I really wanted to do more than anything was to talk to that 11-year-old me who felt like she didn't deserve to take up space, who felt that she wasn't smart enough or good enough, or felt that everything was out of control. And to let her or him or they know that, that it does get better and that they're not alone. And so I took a deferral my first year of grad school. I called my parents up and I'm like, so I'm going to start a nonprofit. And they're like, fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, and so they, they basically gave me a year and they said, you know, if, if you can make it in a year, then, then this is a, this is a thing. So I took True story. I took a college loan out. I used uh, like FAFSA money to start the alliance, which I'm sure is probably illegal, but you know, I paid it back. Um, and um, you know, I, I moved back home to South Florida, and the alliance opened its doors on January second, uh, two thousand one. And uh, I haven't looked back. I tried graduate school a few times. I knew that that really wasn't what my heart and my passion. I really fell in love with being an advocate. And so that's the story. That's how it happened. So the story is incredible. I also want to say, I can see now how you say your experience is what created the pillars of the Alliance. Needing access to care and not having it, needing a way to find care and not knowing how to do it, needing diversity in care, needing doctors who understand eating disorders, because I know that's a lot, a, a big part of your work. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, your experience, and, and forgive me, Joanna, for even referring to this, but it's like your experience was a living business plan. And that's, I can't, I don't know what just made me go there. And I'm so sorry if that's yeah. rude. No, it's not. Um, and what I love about what you just said is, 
you know, I also know what privileges I hold. And if that was my experience, what is also happening for, for folks that don't have my uh, privilege? And so it really, to me, was this is what needs to happen. And, you know, I, I really lean against this hard because I want to do everything. I want to help everyone. That's just who I am. It's what I want to do. And I know that, you know, I have this, I, I, one of my mentors a long time ago said to me, Joanna, if you have more than three priorities, you don't have priorities. And so, although I want to do all of those things, I'm really happy that there are, uh, you know, so many fellow advocates in this world that are doing the work and that are, you know, I, I, I think that's so beautiful that, you know, not, not, no one person, no one organization can do it all. Um, but yeah, like for me, it was, I hate to say it was clear, but it was just very clear what, what I needed to do. So, you know, one of the things that I want to talk about is just, is the, the immense work that you do with, you know, trying to get things passed in legislation and things like that. First of all, I want to, I want to give a few numbers, which, which I don't normally give statistics, but, and I think a lot of people know this, but just in case they don't, I want everybody to hear this again. Every 52 minutes, somebody in the United States dies from complications from their eating disorder. Every 52 minutes. So that number is so unbelievable to me. And sometimes I forget because I'm so in the work that I just, and so because of the work you're doing, I wanted to make sure everybody knew that number. And so starting there, where do we go, Joanna? Where, how do we help the ones that don't fit the stereotype of an eating disorder, don't have access to care? Like, just, I, I feel overwhelmed for the first time in a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you when you talk about numbers, like every 52 minutes, you're taking a look at the fact that, you know, only a third of individuals that, that experience an eating disorder will ever have access to any type of care. And it might not actually be the right type of care. It might not be for the, the extent that they need. I mean, I'm sure, Karen, you have had so many patients that have, you know, that have, you know, finally gone to a higher level of care because they they needed it. And I don't believe that higher levels of care are for everyone. I do believe that there's not one size fits all treatment. There's a whole bunch of different treatments and I'm so grateful for that. But like they'll, they'll finally get to like a higher level of care because they need it. And then five days later, seven days later, two weeks later, they get a call from their insurance company that says, you're leaving tomorrow. And they're dropped from that higher level of care back to an outpatient provider. And this is someone who literally needs that higher level of care. Um, And so that is really where we start. We take a look. These numbers are just not okay. And I, I will share with you, and we can talk about this more later, that's sort of where our motto of not one more really came came to play. Um, I was actually in a job interview. I was interviewing someone uh, for the Alliance. And in between, one of our amazing teammates here came in and she shared with me that a family that we had been working with, um, the son actually lost his life. And I felt so angry. I felt so helpless. I felt I felt all the feels. I felt sad. Um, and I just looked at my colleagues and I said, not one more. This is it. Not one more. And that is what I, that's sort of my North Star with 
with everything I do, not one more. And we're not just talking about not one more life being lost. We're talking about not one more moment being taken away, not one more joy, because, you know, I can definitely sit here in the dialectic of the eating disorder where I understand that it's a coping mechanism. It's a maladaptive coping mechanism that none of us choose to have, but it also takes everything away. It, it, it steals it steals the essence of who we are. It's, it steals our joy, our happiness, all of that at the same time. And so when we have a number, like every 52 minutes, we got to take a look at how we are failing folks. So first and foremost, access to care. Like, why are we not doing more for access to care? And I will tell you from a legislative side, it's one of the biggest hurdles that we will ever have to move. I am really, really thrilled to share that the Eating Disorders Coalition just had a really huge victory. Um, TRICARE, for example, the way that TRICARE was written, um, and for those of you who don't know what TRICARE is, it's, an it's a type of insurance that, um, that loved ones of military, of, of active military and uh, former military have. Um, they actually stopped residential and, and inpatient levels of care at 20 years old. If you were higher than 20 years old, you could not access eating disorder residential care. Now, again, we don't really know where that number came from, but I'm really, really thrilled to share that after so much work on the part of the coalition, about two and a half weeks ago, it was signed into law by the by President Biden that now TRICARE starting October of this year will actually go all the way up to 64 years old because that's when Medicare comes in. So the treatment of eating disorders will be covered all the way up to 64, which is huge. It's it's huge because I also want to point out that and I and I believe I heard this in, in an episode that you were talking for, for another podcast, the military has a really high incident of eating disorders due to the kind of people that go into the military, the perfectionists, the driven, yes. the rule followers. There's, there's, you know, weight demands and things like, and to then hear that they only get, they were only getting coverage to age 20 mm -hmm. is, is unbelievable. Well, and you know, one of the things that I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to eradicate or shattering, um, you know, the stigma and stereotypes around eating disorders. You know, I'm very aware that, you know, how I live my life now is, is, you know, you know, individuals will see me and they're like, yeah, you know, you're, your cis het, you know, your Caucasian, your female identifying, you know, you, you have, you are thin bodied. Yes, of course. Like, yes, I understand that you had an eating disorder and I'm just like, but you need to walk away from that because only 6% of individuals that experience eating disorders are medically underweight. So we are doing huge disservices to individuals that are going undetected. And that's sort of where, um, you know, you shared about um, my passion for educating our frontline providers, doctors, nurses, dentists, on how to recognize and refer. My goal is not to make them specialists. At that point, we're like, go get the training. Here are organizations that can help you. But please know enough not to do harm. My goal is that they can recognize it and then they can refer out. Because I need individuals to know that whether 
you know, they lived in a marginalized community that they are not just overlooked for having eating disorders. And it's often individuals that live in, you know, marginalized bodies, marginalized communities that are not getting access to care. And we need to do better. And it goes not only from access to care, but it looks at we're not doing the research we need because let's be honest, there's so little funding for research around eating disorders. And so much of the research that's being done is again, or sort of amplifying that archaic stereotype. Um, I had the privilege of of sitting on a Department of Defense um, grant review uh, committee this past year. And it was really interesting to see from an insider's perspective, like, again, like, you know, the, like what researchers are coming to the table with. And so what my hope was being at that table is to push people to think outside because so many more folks are living outside of that box than in that box. So, you know, I think it comes to research, it goes to access to care, it goes to um, intervention, like referrals. Um, that's how we start changing that, that 52 number, that 52 number statistic. I also think that, and and forgive me, I know I, I sort of say things about the insurance companies, and I don't mean to say anything negative about anyone, but the insurance company needs to know that you can be in a larger body and have anorexia nervosa. You can be in a smaller body and have binge eating disorder. There is no there is no one way. And thank God we've been educated, but there's a lot of important people that haven't gotten the lesson yet. And I will say, as somebody who was a clinical director for years, I did millions, and I, it feels like millions, of, of, of utilization reviews and doc-to-docs for, for clients, you know, trying to get them to be able to stay at treatment. And insurance, first of all, they do have just a box. Tick, tick, tick. When's the last time they purged? Six days ago. Tick. Okay, when's the last time of this tick? But what they're not understanding is that this person is in 24-hour care, which is just, you know, they almost get blamed for following the rules. They get penalized for following the rules and clients get discharged right away. And it is, it is, I, I think what's scariest is the insurance company. And well, gosh, I'm sorry, that was a big statement to make, but it's my truth. <laughs> and and I will validate your truth and I will stand, <laughs> I will stand right next to you in that. And you know, I, I think that that's really what's been the work of, of the Eating Disorders Coalition for so long. And definitely the work at the Alliance is, you know, we've had these, you know, I, I think I just need to like take a step back and say, you know, I think that there's this group like idea that not more has been done, not enough has been done. And to give you an idea, the insurance, um, the insurance lobby, um, is the biggest lobby in the world. It's bigger than the NRA lobby. So they have the most amount of funds and the most amount of influence when it comes to legislation. And the last thing that they want is any type of regulation. And there's, so there's federal, but then there's state. And it matters on your state how your insurance fares in regards to how they treat eating disorders. I live in Florida and I can't even tell you. I'm everyone knows about like what's going on in Florida so we'll just leave it at that. But to say that, you know, people don't have access to care and I've been on phone calls with like with heads of these the biggest insurance companies and I really try to remind myself all the time like don't come in with your angry like like you know you're 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 an angry human like you get more flies with with honey than with vinegar. But at the end of the day, I need to let them know that they have blood on their hands. And that's the bottom line, is that eating disorders 
any mental health needs to be treated on par with physical health. In fact, we have a law in this country called mental health parity, where it's all the same. Health is health, physical, mental, that's it. It all is the same. However, still to this day in 2022, we have a different set of standards when it comes to mental health. And I will tell you, I carried that so much in my experience. I had so much shame because I thought that because it was above my neck, I should be able to recover on my own. If I had enough intellect, if I had enough willpower, if I had enough of this, I should. And when I didn't, because I can't, because people cannot recover on their own, just as a diabetic cannot ameliorate their sugar levels without medicine. We need access to care. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you are beating yourself up because you've fallen down on your journey to recovery, please know that that is expected. There is no one who will walk this journey of recovery flawlessly or perfectly. And the falls are the most important part of the journey to recovery. The scars that I have today from my experiences are the things that make me who I am and that have literally crafted and molded me into a human that I am so grateful to have grown into. I'm a work in progress and I will be a work in progress until the, my last breath, but please do not beat yourself up because you've had a slip or a trip or a fall. It's not about the, the uh, trips and the slips. It's about what happens right after. It's about picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and taking that next step and know that you do not have to get up on your own, that there are people around you. And even if you don't have access to care, there are free services that will help you walk this journey of recovery. I also want to say if because of no access, people are doing this on their own, this is where eating disorders thrive in isolation. So we're, we're, we're expecting or asking or hoping that somebody can do it on their own when it's like the, it's like the breeding ground of behaviors, shame, secrecy. And, and I could not agree with you more. And I've said this before on the podcast, it's not about the behavior. It's about what you do after I, when I was a clinical director and somebody would knock on the door and say to me, I just purged. I'm like, awesome. You're one step closer to recovery. It's not about the purge. It's about the fact that you you came, you owned it, and you said, I need help. I can't do this on my own. By the way, I don't think anyone can do almost anything on their own. And so it's not a flaw. It's part of human nature. And then on top of it, add the additional stressors and anxieties of an eating disorder. Of course, you can't do it on your own. I just thank you for, for, for saying that. And I, you know, folks ask me all the time, all right, Joanna, what was, what was the thing that helped you recover? If there was like, you know, one thing and I'm like, well, there's not one thing, there's never one thing, but I will tell you that something that was really important in my journey was honesty and accountability, because as a perfectionist still to the to this day I'm I'm working on it it's you know and it's it's at the core of who I am as I was on this journey to recovery I I wanted the facade to look like I was doing great and so I would have a trip in a fall and instead of being honest and sharing you know with with people that could help me I would just be like, nope, you know, keep on walking and then I would trip and fall again and then for me the shame of tripping and falling just 
continued to melt. And before I knew it, I was in the, in the midst of a big lapse or a relapse. And then like my therapist or my team would say to me, well, what happened? I thought that you were doing great. And I was like, you know, and my team would say to me all the time, we don't know what we don't know. There's none of us here that expect you to be perfect. So to me, it caused me to get real and to say, I'm not going to show up as like perfect patients in which I did for so long. Um, so even if you're afraid to show up, show up and be honest, because if you do have access to a team, they can't help you if you don't let them know what's going on. So please be willing to share your truth. Um, it, it was a game changer for me when I, um, you know, when I, when I started sharing my truth and, and was, just honest, like honest and accountable because that's really how I had to, had to walk my journey. I, I want to, I want to expand a little more on present day because I'm sitting here thinking, so first of all, I love the fact that the Alliance celebrates eating disorder awareness month as opposed to just eating disorder awareness week, because as you said, it deserves more than a week this this needs to be talked about as long as possible tell me what the alliance does on a daily basis and tell me what are you doing for eating disorder awareness month because part of this podcast is for me to let people know here's where you go here's the resource here's how you find the support because nobody can do it alone and you and i are here to say we're here to help so Talk about what the Alliance does currently and about Eating Disorder Awareness Month. And forgive me, everyone, not one more weekend that you're having. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the Alliance, we have basically taken, I guess, you know, how you talked about like my life's business plan and turned I'm it so into. Sorry. No. I apologize if that was a crude way of being like, you know, your whole your whole eating disorder and recovery story sounds like a business plan. <laughs> no, I actually very much appreciate that. And I'm like, I'm so excited to use that. So I will definitely credit you for sure. Um, but we have three pillars at the organization. So first and foremost is our education pillar where we do a lot of educating um, our frontline providers, doctors, nurses, dentists. So we work with medical schools. We taught, we, we work with communities across the country. Uh, we, we work with some schools of, uh, you know, you name it, hospital systems where we go in and we do just the basics of what to, what, like what you will see. So to how to recognize it and then where to send people to. So that's really our one of our first things. We also do a bunch of very, very low cost trainings um, throughout the year where we offer uh, for providers that, that need continuing education credit, uh, these day long trainings that are really, really, really inexpensive. And we do that because we want the non-specialized provider, the therapists, the dietitians, to have some knowledge about eating disorders because oftentimes, individuals that have, or clinicians that have no experience will try to treat eating disorders and they'll often end up doing more harm than good. So that's really our education bucket. We have our referrals bucket. Um, so we have a hotline that is staffed by all clinicians. So everyone who works on our referral lines are, are licensed and specialized clinicians that, um, that really 
are very aware and very educated about eating disorders, and they can connect you to all levels of care from outpatient providers like therapists, dietitians, physicians, psychiatrists, all the way up to acute medical stabilization. Um, and we also have the most inclusive and robust referral database called Find ED Help. Um, it is a free database, and it's also it was really important for us for it to be free for for clinicians. Um, therapist, you name it, to be listed because we didn't want it to be exclusive. So if you go on it, you'll notice there's no advertisements, there's no pay to play because we wanted it to be as evergreen as possible. So we have about 4,000 providers in Find ED Help and it's just growing every day. Um, and we're averaging about 1,400 searches a day for, for people finding help. So it's a really robust system. The last big pillar at the organization um, is our support group pillar. So we um, we hold uh, free weekly therapist-led support groups. And you'll notice that everything that I talk about is, is clinician-led because we do believe in the power of, of professionals running spaces. So during non-COVID times, we had 24 in-person support groups around the country. Um, obviously with COVID, we had to very quickly adapt. And so we now have five free weekly support groups. Um, they meet online. There's two pro-recovery support groups for all humans 18 and older. There is our LGBTQ plus support group for individuals that are 18 and older. We have a group specifically for loved ones of individuals that are experiencing eating disorders. And we actually have a mom-specific support group for moms of, of individuals that are experiencing eating disorders. And I'm so thrilled to share that we had over 18,900 people come to our groups in 2021, which is huge. It's it's unbelievable. It's That's it's so unbelievable. Beautiful. It's it's beautiful and it's also devastating to know yes. that there's yes. so much suffering out there. Like I don't know which which side do I want to be on to it. I'm like it's great. Oh, it's so sad. You know. Yeah. What I mean? Yeah, it's you know, it's I have um I have a team member who always says just remember two things can always exist at once and I think that that is exactly um and folks from from 50 all 50 states and 65 countries around the world have come to our groups which is so wonderful. Um, and then we have this little tiny, like little pillar um, that's only in our South Florida location. So something that um, has always been big for me is to really help individuals that don't ever have access to care, gain access to care. So we have, we created what we call our psychological services, which is the first of its, its kind in the country where we have a very low cost outpatient community mental health clinic that is really focused on eating disorders specifically. So these are individuals that are um, underinsured or uninsured. About 75% of our individuals that come to psych services, um, they make an annual household income of 25,000 or less. Um, and the one thing that was really important to us here at Psych Services, we have postdoctoral fellows that um, that 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 uh, see these clients. But the most that they pay is twenty five dollars. The least that they pay is five dollars. Our average person is paying about six dollars right now, um, and there's no limit to frequency how often they can see their therapist or for how long because we do treat to completion. And so we've had that program going on for five years, and it is just. That's my heart because, you know, treatment 
access to treatment cannot be a luxury, it's a necessity. And so that program really does. Um, so that's really us. And of course, we do a whole bunch of advocacy, which is where my heart is. Um, you know, so a lot of work um, on Capitol Hill specifically. Um, I'm the former president of the Eating Disorders Coalition. So I was able to have that, that honor for four years, um, but still very actively involved um, with members of Congress and Senate and uh, the White House, which has been really cool. Um, I also, I, I consider myself very lucky. I was appointed to um, a special committee under Health and Human Services called the ISMIC, which is the Interdepartmental Serious Mental Illness Coordinating Committee. So a big word. Um, and what's really cool, Karen, about having that appointment is um, by having me around that table, it means that the government now says that eating disorders are serious mental illness which is huge. And so really, really excited to be part of that table. So that's what we do on a everyday level. So going to um, Eating Disorders Awareness Month, um, we do a lot of, we, again, we don't believe that it can all be contained into one week. So we do an entire month of programming. Um, so everything from you know, we're going to do some like Instagram lives. We're going to be doing some, some Facebook lives. We're going to be holding different events in communities across the country. But our whole weekend is, our whole month is going to end with our Not One More Weekend, which is our global event. And it's built on our, our motto, help, support, and recovery. So Friday, February 25th will be our, our International Day of Help, where we encourage people to pick up the phone, go online, reach out to providers in your area, and, and, and ask for help, whether it's whatever level you need. Saturday, which is our national day of support, we have our support group marathon. So from 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time all the way up to midnight, 16 hours of support groups in a row. So no matter where you are in the world, you can fall into a group. There's amazing groups like our, you know, relapse prevention group to our ED OCD group, ED SUD group, our loved ones, our partners, male identifying um, athletes and eating disorders. So there's a bunch of different, different um groups. And then Sunday, which is our day, day of recovery, um, we have our Rally for Recovery, which is a big online event. Um, and we are thrilled to share that um, Demi Lovato is going to be our main speaker for that. Uh, we also have the amazing poet Asia Mayrock that's going to be there. And um, Assistant Secretary um, Admiral Rachel Levine is going to be speaking as well. So we're really excited. The whole weekend is free. Um, so please join us. There's so many ways to get involved. Can you tell everyone what you told me before we started recording as to how you came up with this this name, Not One More? Because, Joanna, it's a pretty powerful story. So can you explain where it came from? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, unfortunately, it comes from a place where, you know, I was, I was sitting and I heard that another life was lost. And I don't know about you, Karen, but I, I very much carry that at the front, at the forefront of, of the work that I do. I know how lucky I am to live a life um, in recovery, a recovered life. I also know how many people that I know personally that have lost their battle. And I also can be very aware of how hard I worked um, because recovery was the hardest thing that I did. Um, but I found out that we had lost someone and I turned to my colleagues and I said, not one more. 
that's it. Not one more. And that's how, that's how for me, how it, it really started. And it will be as long as I live, it's going to be sort of at the forefront. Not one more. I also think that what you said that was so heartfelt was not just not one more life, but not one more moment lost. Yeah. Not yeah. one more day, not one more, you know, experience. Like this is what, what people don't, people that aren't struggling, which you're not supposed to, if you don't know what you don't yeah. know. Yeah. But I walked through the world in my eating disorder, completely a shell with like a dazed look over my face where it looked like I was participating in the world and I was not. I, I, I could have been an actor at that point. Like I was really good at playing somebody in the world and the experiences, the moments, the days that you lose. So when you said that, I thought, oh God, that's it. The whole thing, not one more moment. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, I, I I share this story every once in a while, and it's just you know I I had con- con- I had convinced my husband to go shopping the day after Thanksgiving, so Black Friday shopping like five years ago. I, he agreed never or four years ago he agreed never to do it again. By the way, after that, and I I have a I have a daughter who is five. She is everything to me. Um, I never thought I would be able to have kids. In fact, I was told for twenty years that I wouldn't be able to have children because of my eating disorder, and and. She just appeared. Um, and so, well, let's be honest. She didn't just appear. Yeah, no, she didn't just appear. Um, yeah, no, she wasn't just dropped off. So yes, I, I, we made her and I'm so sorry. I forgive me. I just kind of was like, in my mind, I'm thinking "Eh, she really just appear. Come on, Joanna. (laughs) Well, that's the G rated version, my friend, (laughs) you know? So, um, but you know, what was really cool is my body had healed to a place where I would be able to have her. And that was a really, really cool moment. And so I was, I, I was in a very good mood despite like the chaos around me. And I looked at my husband and we were talking about her and I said, you know, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And my husband who, bless him, has been through this journey. Uh, he, he and I reconnected. We've known each other our whole lives. So we reconnected when I was early in my recovery journey. He said, I don't think so. She's great. But he said, the best thing that you ever did was your recovery. Because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be together. She wouldn't be here. And the Alliance wouldn't be here. And it, 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 it took my, a moment, it took me a moment and it actually took my um, breath away because, you know, I think that there's this misnomer about recovery, about what recovery is, right? People think that it's sunshine bunnies and rainbows because it has to be the other extreme of what you're going through, because if you're going through hell right now, please know we see you and we hear you and you are not alone. But I thought that recovery was going to be sunshine bunnies and rainbows. And it's not. You recover to life, not utopia. And that is so damn important to remember. And I will tell you like what you just said about just existing. I get to live now. And living can be very overwhelming sometimes. I feel feelings that I don't necessarily want to. And like I shared, I'm, you know, the last two years with the pandemic has really done some fun stuff with my anxiety and I get to experience it and I get to show up and I'm not losing like the all moments anymore. Cause before I would miss everything and yeah, I might be feeling the not so good moments, but I do get to show up for the good moments or 
when amazing things happen or when things that are not great happen, I get to be there. And by the way, it's important for us to be there through all of it, even the not good things, because they happen whether we can like cover our ears and close our eyes and go, la, 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 it's not happening. I can't see you, but it is. And so to not be able to be present in it, it, it it's it's actually just going to create more anxiety later. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's two things, and, and I have said this before, and, and you said it similarly. I've been through a lot in my life. And I will say hands down, the hardest thing I ever did was recover from an eating disorder. I will also say, and I think you said this or you've said it before, I wear it as a badge of courage. Like I have made it through the fire. And like you said, don't I, anybody who's listening, do not give up. Do not. It is so hard. And I've never met a recovered person who regrets being recovered. Yes. Yes. I also want to say, and, and I, I hope this is not, uh, you know, triggering for anybody, but it just made me think of this when you said you never thought you were going to ever be able to have a child because of your eating disorder. There are unexpected things that happen in our life. And I, about six years after my eating disorder was in a horrific, horrific accident. A fourth floor balcony collapsed, went all the way to the ground. I cannot imagine my bones would have, I I cannot imagine had I been in the height of my eating disorder, Joanna, that I would have survived that accident. Yeah. Yeah. My body was strong. I was resilient both physically and emotionally. And the irony of all of it, and again, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the air. I lost almost all my teeth in the accident. And my father, God love my father, said, whatever she wants, I am going to puree it because we just got her over an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. And now you're putting her on a liquid diet for two years because like my dad was like, oh my God. And so it is, it is amazing what our bodies can do. And it is amazing and terrifying what the eating disorder does to our bodies on a daily basis, our organs, our skin, our hair, and in a bigger, in a larger scale, God forbid we need our body to save our lives. Yeah. Just doesn't. You just can't. And I don't know what just made me think of that for the first time. What would have happened if that accident had happened when I was in my eating disorder? I don't think I would have made it. It's, I have chills listening to to, to your story. And I, you know, one of the things that I garnered from, from you sharing was hope. And I, I think that so many people, especially right now, they need that. And not only can you heal your organs and your bones, you can also heal your mind as well. And one thing that for me, I was like, is my, is my brain going to always think the way that, that it, that it thinks are my thoughts always going to go in the manner that they're going. 
And the truth of the matter is, is that the answer is no. I mean, there's some levels that yes, like I know that there are certain things I will never be able to do. I will never be able to go on a diet. I will never be able to do, to do any type of restriction. I have to be very cautious with the exercise that I do. But the way that my mind thinks, like, thank goodness for neuroplasticity. Thank goodness that we can create new pathways because I can at this point, and I'm just, I have so much gratitude, which is why I'm sharing this is I can have that shitty committee thought or that, that urge. And I can turn around and say, I hear you. And I choose to do something different. I don't sit there and pick at it anymore. It's not like that pimple on my face where I'm like, I got to get it. I can just say, I see you, I hear you. And I'm still going to X, Y, and Z, nourish myself, take the next step. And I'm so grateful for that. It doesn't matter if you've been in recovery for a beat or a lifetime. It doesn't matter if you've experienced your eating disorder for a beat or a lifetime. Please know it gets better. You are not the exception to the rule. You're not that little asterisk and the and the the you know the bottom like that, that end note. Recovery is possible. Period. And I just took a deep breath because as myself and everyone that I've ever treated, they all and as I said, I had that thought, everyone else can do it. Recovery's not going to work for me. Doesn't work. It's just, it's not going to fit well, no pun intended. And everybody has that feeling. And it does. It works for everybody. It does. It's hard. Oh God, it's hard, right? It's so hard. And what I would just say, and it is said with so much loving, caring, and compassion is what makes you so damn special that you don't deserve to recover too. And you do. That's right. Joanna, I am so sorry to say that we are going to have to start closing this episode up. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners? Anything that you want to talk about that I didn't bring up? I so appreciated our conversation. I think that thank you for creating this space. Thank you for creating this podcast. Thank you for everything you do. Um, the only thing that I would leave um, your listeners with is the Alliance is here. If you need anything to walk next to you on your journey to recovery, whether it's to join one of our support groups, to bring a presentation to your community, um, to get a referral to care, please don't hesitate to reach out. This is what we're here for. You don't have to walk this journey alone. And also remember that although the journey can be very messy and very eventful and exhausting, you get to rest and you get to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep on moving forward and just hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. That's right. Hold on to hope. Joanna. From the bottom of my heart, I, I truly want to thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much. Take good care. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybytespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at recoverybytespod on Instagram. 
If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.